Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's been a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song. It is today, and it will be for a long time, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We are broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. And on today's show, we're talking about food, the food industry, authorities on food, foodie personalities. I mean, I've always found it really weird that a lot of people who claim authority on culturally specific cuisines were not of that specific culture. Yeah. So we're going to unpack all of that today. I mean, like I even made a comment about it last week with people that go around eating biryani, but they celebrate January 26th. Makes no sense to me. Yeah. How are you going to go around and celebrate a genocidal day and eat cultural foods at the same time or claim like a white nationality, but you, you know, you love your Rogan Josh. It doesn't make any sense to me. You love your Ben Me rolls. Like I don't get it. I just it. don't need like a Jamie Oliver type telling me how to cook. Filipino yeah. food. Sorry. I don't care that you found this interesting. <laughs> I've had it happen many times. I've had lots of white men try and tell me how to cook a curry. Oh. It's so insulting. And I'm just like, all you've done is just, it's not about how hot you make it because you've actually just burnt the masala. And they're like, yeah, yeah but it's hot, isn't it? I'm like, that doesn't matter. It tastes, it tastes horrible. <laughs> Yeah, we've touched on the the whiteness of food media before on the show, but this week we're bringing you a story by Millie Roberts, who chatted with a couple of the contributors to New Voices on Food. It's a recently released anthology which uh, celebrates new and emerging foodies in media from a variety of uh, underrepresented uh, backgrounds. So that's coming up soon. And later on, we'll also be chatting to Ruby Wharton. Ruby is a part of Gamilla Ray Next Generation, a collective of young Gomorrah people that was formed late last year to fight Santos Energy Company from fracking into their homeland. Race Matters. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Daniel Sargas, and towards the end of last year, an anthology like no other hit the shelves. It's edited by food writer and the host of Local Fidelity here on FBI Radio, Lee Tran Lam. He's Race Matters uh, resident foodie and the EP of Backchat on FBI, Millie Roberts, with more. Food writing can be oh so white. It can be exclusionary, it can erase, and it can overlook a myriad of exciting, unheard voices. Here on Race Matters, we've delved into how food ties us to family and culture, as well as the whitewashing of ethnic dishes. And it expands beyond MasterChef and Eurocentric restaurant reviews into how Australia isn't delving enough into our multicultural food sphere. 
So last year, in comes food writer and FBI's own Lee Tran Lam, who sought to fill this gap with a refreshing opportunity to hear from, as the titular book suggests, new voices on food. The anthology showcases untapped writers, photographers and illustrators from a variety of backgrounds. I spoke with the editor about why she put new voices on food together. You'll also hear a sneak peek on what you can expect from the book. Have a listen. My name's Lee Tran Lam. I'm a freelance journalist. I write a lot about food and I recently edited an anthology called New Voices on Food, which is about showcasing diverse and new voices in food media. Uh, and I also run an Instagram account called Diversity in Food Media, trying to highlight some of the very diverse talent who are covering food in Australia. And was there a specific event or reason that prompted you to start New Voices in Food? I think after the very tragic death of George Floyd, that started many necessary conversations about representation and inclusion and you know who's being left out who's not being covered you know there's a lot of criticism about how the media in general is not very representative of the community what was happening was that a lot of food media because of the pandemic they all had no budget so they're all just producing work from on staff writers and most of those staff writers were white so there was a slight kind of over-representation of a certain Mm. you know worldview or perspective and you know I thought so what can I do it was really inspiring how many people said hey I've never thought of doing this before but here's Mm. an illustration or here's uh, a piece of writing I've written I picked out a couple of pieces from the anthology that I was hoping you could shed a bit of light on. So the first story was by Tyree Barnett. Could you explain why you liked this piece? Just to give you some context, he is a talented writer. He works with Sweatshop, which is a Western Sydney uh, literacy movement. But he also runs a business called Southern Soul, which is a vegan soul food business. And that's really interesting because he's not vegan and his family aren't vegan, but Mm. they see vegan eating as the future. So his piece is a little bit about that, a little bit why he started Southern Soul. But it also goes into his ancestry as someone who is an African-American man who originally is from America and the the history of soul food which is you know to be honest you know really read about soul food Mm. from um, a black perspective you know often it's written by other people and it was really powerful to me to read his writing about his enslaved ancestors Here's Tyree now. My name is Tyree Barnett. I moved to Australia with my wife back in 2012. I'm originally from the U.S., North Carolina to be exact. Soul food was originally a food of survival or a food of scarcity. It came from enslaved Africans on plantations in the American South. They were given scraps by the slaveholders, so nothing fancy. Root vegetables, leftover pieces of meat, uh, really just scraps from whatever the family did not eat or whatever surplus or cheap because there were cornmeal uh, or maybe polenta, bits of fish, uh, et cetera, leafy ends of green vegetables that weren't really desired. And so the enslaved would take this food and uh, make it edible. So they would take the leafy ends of greens, do them in a pot, 
add sometimes, if it was available, the fatty ends of, of meats or uh, meat scraps to try to add flavor. And the cooking techniques that the enslaved used came from villages back in West Africa where a lot of the enslaved were taken from their communities. And so they brought these cooking techniques over. And so that's where soul food kind of originated from. And as I understand, there's some stereotypes around soul food with grease and unhealthiness that kind of remind me of problematic portrayals of black people and fried chicken. What problems do these mischaracterizations cause? Sure. Well, the problems that they cause would include kind of a lack of appreciation and and just also a, a, a kind of a disrespect of the culture. Because, you know, food, cuisine is, is part of culture, just like a language, clothing, etc. So it's just yet another knock that, you know, Black Americans um, have to face. And then you also lose tradition and recipes being handed down, you know, from generation to generation. And, and you lose that cultural connection of how we started off in the, in the new world at the time as well. I guess other problems that arise, I guess people in our own community, in the African-American community, then look down upon and get away from and don't appreciate their own food culture and their own food origins. And that kind of allows outsiders to come in and take, you know, what's really valuable. If we don't respect and uphold and kind of gatekeep our own food culture, it's going to be taken away. And you touched on the appropriation of soul food by white cooks in America post 9-11. Is this still the case in the States? Since 9-11, when America was kind of searching for its own um, cultural origin and cultural identity and unique cultural contributions, you know, without, I guess, having um, lived there now for a few years, I, mm. I, I don't think things have you know drastically changed. I think there has been, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, a bit of an awakening, but at least now people have the language they are aware and they're a bit more savvy about, you know, how appropriation works. And I guess the delicate balance between, you know, really appreciating a different food culture and wanting to cook within that food culture, but without erasing the true story and the origin and the people that, you know, helped to create that food culture. So about two years ago for me, my first experience of soul food was on a holiday I took in Louisiana and there were these mm. beautiful hearty bowls of gumbo. And for listeners who may mm. not know what that is, it's kind of a stocky stew. I also had rice and beans, okra, turnip greens, and jambalaya, which was a paella-like dish. And it just felt those dishes were similar to the ones that my own African mum made. It was felt like it was made with love and intention. And I was hoping to find out from you if you could touch on, on some of those familial rituals that are tied in with preparing soul food. I guess when I think of of soul food, I guess from my own perspective, and I think of like meals, I think back to like my grandmother's kitchen. I think back to Christmas or Thanksgiving. I think back to, uh, you know, having a few different generations of, of, of people, men and women in the kitchen, you know, helping prepare. I think also about just stories being shared uh, during the preparation of the food, uh, as well as um, techniques, you know, and, and Many times, my mother-in-law is a perfect example. She does not measure um, anything, any sort of seasoning or ingredient. She goes by taste and she goes by, you know, experience. She has a very seasoned hand, you know, when it comes to cooking and she's an excellent cook. And so it's passing along sort of these little techniques or, you know, really, really even a lack of, I guess, custom or defined way of doing things that, you know, the kitchen is your is your art studio and the meal is your piece of art really being able to express love and appreciation for those around you by feeding them by by having something 
party and feeling. Those are probably memories and what I would associate the connections with, with soul food. And could you tell us a bit about your personal venture, Southern Soul Sydney? So that was something uh, my wife and I started three years ago. We were home for Christmas and she was in her mother's kitchen and they were talking and she was like, you know, I've, I've often uh, uh, realized that, um, you know, soul food is actually very much vegetarian based. And what we see in Sydney, you know, with, with overpriced, you know, fried chicken or, or, you know, overpriced barbecue ribs or et cetera, and that being it and that being presented as food from the, from the American South is not authentic. It's not our full food story. And, and it's also not involving us either. Like, you know, we're not in the kitchen. We're not uh, in the restaurant. We're not, you know, doing anything front of house or even back of house. So we thought, well, if there's going to be soul food, it deserves, you know, to have a better story and it deserves to have a, a better representation and a more accurate representation. And Southern Soul was born. It's an educational piece as well in trying to get people to understand what they were eating and, and what soul food actually is. And now an excerpt from Tyree's piece. Soul food is experiencing the dogged survival of black Americans since 1619 when we first arrived in the shackles to America. It is not just fatty glistening fried foods, too much salt, and not enough nutrition. There is a rich plant-based history behind it and a multitude of stories accompany every dish. It is more rewarding to first seek out a full and authentic source of this food and to truly understand what is being communicated on the plate. you find a much richer story that way. Back to Lee Tran. What has been the reception to the release? It's been really quite moving to get some personal messages from people who have not felt seen and have really resonated with what they've read. I got a message from an Asian Australian woman who said, you know, she had been racially abused that day. And then reading these stories of people that she really resonated with, and especially the last piece, which is by Arabella Douglas, who is a First Nations woman, talking about the link between First Nations communities and Chinese Australian communities, knowing that just made her feel better about the world Mm. and I thought that was really powerful to know that so Arabella Douglas she runs curry country with her family where they offer these experiences where people can connect to the indigenous roots of the Tweed area which is where she's from and her story is about how she connected with a local woman and how her family has this very classic Chinese restaurant you know where they sell spring rolls and prawn toast and all those very like um, you know classic Chinese uh, Australian dishes and she talked about how could they come together and collaborate and create a version of a Chinese restaurant that also embraces Indigenous culture and kind of is uh, a blueprint for what the Chinese restaurant of the future could be. Meet Arabella. Um, My name is Arabella Douglas. I'm a Minyambu Bunjalung woman from the Tweed Coast. I have connections to Minyambu and Malanjali country, which borders southeast Queensland into far north New South Wales. So actually from your piece, Arabella, I was surprised to learn that Chinese people were in Australia before the first fleet. Could you elaborate on that? There's a misconception that white Australians were the first Australians on the first fleet, which is, and therefore were the first, I guess, colonial uh, extensions or extenders. 
so the Aboriginal relationship with other people actually begins with people from China and from Asia. And it begins well before 1788. If you were to take a very logical view, you would understand that Chinese people and Asian people and Aboriginal people have a far longer history than the 233 years we share with those that have come from parts of Britain and parts of Europe. I guess I wanted to ask about your relationship with Eastern Door that you detail in the piece that you wrote. So as traditional owners, where we are and how we operate in this space, it's really to try to lead a different way that we might consider ourselves to be sharing this space. Like most of Australia, we have second and third generation Chinese people who have had long established histories here in Australia, some longer than that. We have Chinese Aboriginal people in our own family. If these two groups of people had a full relationship, which they did, that did not include white Australia, what does that look like? Now in Queensland, there was something called the Aboriginal and Opium Act, which is often referred to as the Aboriginal Act. And it sought to separate Chinese people from Aboriginal people because they were fraternising together and were on the margins of the community together. But in that, there's an oppressive narrative because you're marginalised and you're being politicised through legislation about your movements. But the softer part of that story is that when you're in that experience together, you create community and community is often anchored in food sharing, how you manage food the elements behind food, the rituals behind food. Their daughter, the, the owners of Eastern Door, had gone to school with my niece in the area. They've been in the area for some 40 years or almost 40 years. Doing the classic, the only Chinese place in town narrative next to an RSL club, etc. I met Renee and her family. Uh, Renee is a budding chef. So I thought this is perfect because Renee's family's story, which was we came here, we immigrated, and therefore we were the only Chinese restaurant in remote parts of Australia moving with, you know, moving on the peripheries, but being a pivotal part of the fabric of the town, being the only Chinese store, the only Chinese restaurant in town, reframing that so that we no longer have communities with one Chinese restaurant and people are assuming that they're the foreigner, but we reframe them to understand that in fact, Chinese people are here first with Aboriginal people and we set the tone for values, for food, for relation to ritual, for relation to ritual in food. Absolutely. And what I loved in your piece was the point you raised for Chinese diaspora kids and Chinese Australian kids, knowing that they've also got history and attachment to country when there's still remnants of racist kind of go back to where you came from mentality from white Australia why is this dialogue so important in your opinion? The only people who would consider that Chinese people need to go back to where they came from are people who come with a colonial lens and believe that the story starts with them. And I just won't stand for it. As a First Nations people, we're not going to stand for it. The way that you pull apart that narrative and you lighten it and infect it with goodness is for the First Nations people to actually be the storytellers and say, no, Chinese people are here first. Mm. Indian people are in fact next. Then you have a whole influx of people from the sugar slave trades, etc. Then you start to get white migration. 
and it does not support people who are in fact third or fourth generation Chinese to genuinely feel connected to this continent in that rich his historical connection. I mean, I like the fact of telling Chinese Australian kids that I'm rooted to this continent. I'm here, mm. always have been here and I don't need to go anywhere. I've been with black people standing side by side for all that time. I think that's extremely powerful, mm. even for the international Black Lives Matter movement, or even for the debate about January 26th. Here's an excerpt from Arabella's piece. We're doing ourselves a disservice by pretending that white Australia is the definer of introductions to each other. And they're not even in my psyche one bit. I go, no thanks, I've got other stories to tell. Guys, you've been holding court for 230 years and still struggle to articulate a national identity that looks and behaves like its own person. We need to retell the story so that anyone who is a third generation Chinese Australian goes, bitch, I've been here a long time. I've got a solid history with Aboriginal people. I want young Chinese people to grow up with that pride, that alignment with our own spiritual values. I'm really glad the book allows people to understand and have a perspective into all these different lives and show that food is more than just something you eat. You know, it really taps into everything from immigration to the environment, into politics, uh, into um, family history. Uh, there's so there's so much to food. I think having a diverse view on food and diverse understanding of food is actually yeah really important it touches on so many more things than just whether you're hungry or not that's lee tran lam editor of new voices on food a new anthology shining a light on perspectives outside of your old white food critic you also heard from two contributors to the collection arabella douglas and past guests of race matters tyree barnett new voices on food is available at any good bookstore thanks to millie roberts as well for bringing us that story you're listening to race matters i'm sada khan i'm darren lasagas and uh, up next we're going to chat with gomorrah woman ruby wharton uh you may be familiar with Gamilaray Next Generation. Uh, they're a collective of young Gomoroi people fighting against the fracking of their lands and waters in Narrabri and the Pilliga. Uh, Santos Energy is behind that. And we're going to hear from Ruby about the day of action happening on February 5. Listening to Race Matters, I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. Right now, we're joined with a Gomorrah woman, Ruby Wharton. Ruby is a part of Gamilaray Next Generation, a collective of young Gomorrah people fighting against Santos Energy who are about to frack on their lands in Narrabri and the Pilliga and for the state and federal governments to abolish their cultural heritage laws. Thank you so much for joining us today, my sister. No, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me and Gamilaray Next Gen on and the rest of the Gomorrah Nation on. Absolutely. So with Gamilaray Next Generation, that was started up last year. How did this group begin? So it's pretty much just I was rocking and rolling and turning and tossing in my bed one night and I just couldn't deal with not having a young collective anymore. So... Mm. And it's something all of us young Gumaroi have talked about separately. So I just thought I'd put out a Facebook page, uh, put out put out a Facebook post with a Zoom link open to any Gumaroi to come in and jump on. 
and that's pretty much how we started. And we've been rolling ever since. I mean, like, that really just shows as well that every, all of the frustrations that um, young blackfellas have got today, it's a, it's a shared frustration and it's a shared kind of angst that we have as well of, like, feeling like feeling a little bit helpless and a little bit hopeless when, you know, you see these big government powers have you making all of these decisions without, you know, it's just, all, and it's full of exploitation as well. So you would, I can totally understand that feeling you were just describing then about that tossing and turning and, you know, what, like, how do we kind of, you know, mobilize and come together? And so with that Zoom session, like, how, you know, who, who jumped on, how, you know, what was the feeling when you first started that, that when you, when people came to that call to action of yours? Oh, uh... I felt overwhelmed. I think we had about 28 people jump on the Zoom. And we have, so we have a, we, like, and we all are still a part of the group. And we have so many great people like Nathan Leslie, Tamika Tai, Tallulah Brown, who's an amazing TikTok influencer. We have Cameron Manning Brown, Bo Spearham, um, Pete Spearham like Janelle Walford, Ian Brown. It, it, the list goes mm. on and on. And these are all young, amazing black fellas that have been doing things in their own space and have been, like, the skills that they've brought to Gamilaray Next Generation is unreal, especially Tamika Tai, can't, like, and both Spiram and Nathan Leslie. I really can't, like, I appreciate having so many great people around me like that because yeah. they influence and inspire so many people. And it's truly these mobs that are doing great things for us. So Gamal means no. That's the, the call that has identified Gamilaroi Next Generation. Can you take us back to the statement that was released by the Gomorrah Nation back in November last year? What did the statement call for? So the statement calls for action. It calls for unity and allyship and solidarity. And it's also calling to take a government, well, a level to lob, uh, the next step to lobby government and parliament to stop the approval of the Santos Narrabri gas project. And it's essentially just a call to unify people so that we can share our skill sets and share our knowledge bases and our networks so that we can benefit our whole nation and country, I might add. Like, the this is a significant project purely because of the presence of the Great Artesian Basin and the plans that Santos have to use water from the Great Artesian Basin to extract gas from, the, from, in, in, from beneath the surface and dispose of it in a really unsafe and destructive manner. And that's what we're coming up against. And we essentially, you need numbers and you need to be able to cover every single level of society, every aspect of society, whether it be government, whether it be the mining industry. And as a parent right now, it's Rugby Australia is also a stakeholder in the Santos Narrabri Gas Project. Mm. So essentially, we're just calling, calling for action, calling for solidarity and unity. Yeah, you mentioned the Artesian Basin. Um, on top of that, for, for those of us who aren't familiar, can you walk us through the lands and waters that's encompassed in Gomorrah country? Like, what's at stake there? 
so there's um, the Murray-Darling Basin is, uh, like, Gumaroy is a big part of the Murray-Darling Basin. The river system that runs through Narrabri is the Nemoy, and that's the river that I... So I, I was born out in Weewar, which is only 20, 30 k's out uh, west of Narrabri, and it's pretty much the one township. But um, so I was born out in Weewar. I come from Weewar in Narrabri, and the basin... The Artesian Basin it makes up is the largest um, un- underground water base. Bore, it's essentially bore water, yep. and it's the under. It's the largest one that we have in the world, and it comprises of seventy percent of Queensland and New South Wales. And it is a great tourist attraction for South for Northwest Queensland and Southwest Queensland. The Great Artesian Bores are healing their medicine and it's a big big song line for the Gumaroy and many other nations. The Great Artesian Basin is significant because my other communities that I was, that I come from on my father's side like Kanamala, we are Kanamala runs on bull water. So the risks and this even the Great Artesian Basin even comes into play in conversations with Adani coal mine. Yeah. It's it, that big it's got that big of a scope if and when you got all of these mining projects happening and are going to be extracting from that basin we are essentially destroying it before we even know what the ramifications are i i worry for my kuma kunya maori nations out in katamala that in the next 10 years we may not even have water to drink or water to bathe in our water to swim in. We already have water loop, like that's being lost on our country. So, like, one of the other things that we have is in Gumaroy is Gali is life, and Gali means water. So, like, essentially, when you go out to destroy our water supply, an ancient water, su- water supply that has been benefiting and resourceful to Aboriginal nations for hundreds and thousands of years. You're destroying something that is literally the only thing that sustains some communities. So that's, that's, that's the significance around it. Yeah, and, as, and like what's really infuriating as well is the propaganda that gets pushed with these projects as well and that it's for the benefit yeah. of the community. They say statements like, you know, this will supply this, um, you know, quota amount of jobs to the community. And it's essentially propaganda and it's really infuriating because it's also then, you know, shifting, like, you know, this country has such a, like, misplaced value on um, the land. They don't, they, like, a lot of people don't even understand, they have no connection to the space. Like, a lot of people just don't even really know what they're standing on and what you've just described right then and then. Like, for a lot of people, that would probably be the first thing they've even heard of that. And it's, like, hours away. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And the most, the most, uh, uh, there's two sides to that coin. Like, um, Gumaroy country is prime cotton and wheat mm. or agricultural country. Yeah. It's the best. It's one of the best. We, like, Gumaroy mob, where we come from the black soil. And the black soil is nutritious. It is one of the most densest soil supplies and it gives life our biodiversity and to so it's 
it's this country is of great benefit to white followers as well. And the very presence of colonialism for Gomorrah happened when white men were coming in, killing off and massacring Gomorrah people so that they could take the land and farm it and make money off it. And they and this is one of the richest areas of richest regions in Australia. I I mean even um, Barnaby Joyce owns property on Gumaroy country and has been benefiting and has made money off of the dispossession of Gumaroy people. So this is something that is multifaceted. And it's really interesting out in Narrabri is that we have 98% of the community that are saying no to this gas project. That is black, white and brindle. Yeah. These are black fellas that have come from there. These are white fellas that came there to farm. And essentially the commonality is that all of the people that call Narrabri and the Northwest New South Wales home are people that love that country and people that want to work it, work it and and love it and make sure that it is sustained for future generations. That's what I'm hearing from white voices as well. Mm. And the only voices that are saying, no, let's destroy it, are Santos and, by extension, now in the last couple of, out, like, last couple of weeks, um, the Santos has brought on the uh, Rugby Australia with the Queensland Reds and the New South Wales Waratahs to host a festival of rugby out in Narrabri. It, it is vile propaganda and it's bread and circuses, really. You could think back to the Roman Empire. Mm. You feed the you feed the plebs really, really gory, violent things to distract them from the state oppressing them. And this is exactly how many Gumaroi feel right now. Yeah. And also with the cultural and heritage laws as well. I mean, it's really easy to assume that these laws are in place to protect our lands and resources, but these laws are written and implemented within a system that is fundamentally a danger to our ecosystems and lives as black people. And so how have we seen these laws also function to enable energy and mining interests mining interests and their access to our natural resources? Mining licenses completely override any kind of cultural heritage and native title laws. They literally, there are clauses in this legislation that literally state that mining companies have a greater interest and a greater privilege and a greater right than sovereign owners of that land and Mm. sovereign guardians of those locations and sacred sites. This is literally legislated against. And these are, we've gone through and looked at so many legislation, um, articles of legislation amongst the Camilleray Next Gen, and we've come up to nothing. We've come up to being gridlocked and we're, we're completely without, without a, a plan because of this legislation. So mm. our only option now is civil disobedience. Yeah. And it's whether that, I don't, I doubt that it will be very any any kind of violent uh, on the fifth of February at it, this festival of ecocide out of Narrabri on the fifth of February. But I think that it'll be very a very a very uncomfortable environment to be in, and it just but it's something.
something that we need to do because the legislation has put us in a gridlock. Yeah, we're joined right now over the phone with Gomorrah woman Ruby Wharton. So next week, sis, there'll be a national call to action beginning in Narrabri where um, Gamilla Ray Next Gen, along with um, supporters, will be there to protest in a way that most people wouldn't really expect, and that's at a football game. Can you explain why exactly the fight will be taking place at this game? But it's vile propaganda. Mm. It's literally pitting my community, my own family against each other while a white man feeds us scraps. That is what I'm seeing and that is what I've seen, that my family has been enduring with as well as many other Gumaroy families and clans. We have Whitehaven Coal, we have Santos and we have another coal mine out in our country. And constantly, this has been an ever-growing, an ever-growing industry out in our country that's thought to give a big pay, a relative, I suppose, a decently big pay to black fellows that have known poverty to put them against other their own family who are advocating for self-determination, environmental safety. our biodiversity, our sacred sites, our cultural heritage, our protection and our sovereignty. And it is at the, the, it's because of Santos and white companies like that. Mm. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. So that we, and one thing that you see out in Narrabri, at one stage, Narrabri was known to be the capital for sport in New South Wales. We have so many great sporting stars that have come from there. And we have so many great, great family. I'm very honoured to, I'm a Trindle. Uh, um, I got a lot of, I've had family members play in the NRL. I have a young cousin who plays in the NRL right now. I have young cousins that are aspiring and are on feeder teams. And it's something that is ingrained in our identity. And Santos is weaponising that and weaponizing the skills and the interests of black people. So to this is vile propaganda at its finest. Mm. This is propaganda. And to think that they can use teams like the Queensland Reds and the New South Wales Boratars and Rugby Australia to use this and pump this out and make themselves look good is fucking revolting. Who the hell do the Reds think they are? Who the hell do, do the Waratahs think they are to go into Gumaroy country and interject in a conversation that is above their pay grade? Yeah. Who do they think they are? That is insulting and that is disrespectful at its finest. And it's going to um, be really quite amazing and it's significant, imperative, all of it, when um, GNG, along with all of the supporters as well, show up to Narrabri next week and go and take that stand on the field. Because like, I imagine you guys are going to be going directly to those football games where they, where this propaganda is going to be taking place. Most definitely we'll be doing something along those lines. I can't let the babes out the back, but we got a couple of different things planned and we plan on taking it at every level that we could possibly take. Um, it's, it's really, really... Um, I mean, just as, as amazing that, like, 
Gamilaroi Next Generation has um, mobilised so fast in the last few months as well. It really just goes to show the, the staunchness in amongst, like, you know, our young people, especially amongst the um, Gamilaroi generation of people as well. And how can people get involved with GNG and the Narrabri Day of Action next week? So hit us up. We're on Instagram and Facebook. You can always set up the individual members of the site of the of GNG as well. There are also I got a like it's not just Gamilaroi Next Generation. We are being led by older Gumaroy veterans that have been doing this for far longer than what we have. Those are people like Annie, like Linda Witten, Annie Dolly Talbot. Those are people like Nathan Leslie. Those are people like Annie Polly Cutmore, Gwenda Stanley. Mm. And these are people that have been working this before we were even born. So we are being led by elders that do know what they're talking about and have seen this destruction since before it was even planned. And so it's not just G&G. So go and hit... Um, there's the Maori Ecological Society. Then there's also um, Annie Dolly Talbot has an open Facebook page. I really encourage everyone to go and go and suss her out. She's been doing this for a long time and is a very well-rounded old, um, elder that I'm very proud to know and have learnt many things on. Well, thank you so much, my sis, for jumping on to Race Matters with us and um, sharing all of this crucial knowledge and information out there as well because, like, without, you know, mob like you out there that are on the front line, people don't know about this stuff. People will never hear about it People and people wouldn't seek out this information as well. So we really, really thank you for, like, all of the work and all of the labour that you do as well. And we always find we always finalise our shows with this last question and that is, Ruby Wharton, when did you realise there was power in your race? I don't think I ever really formally realised it. I just, I just felt it growing up, and that's the only thing I've known to do. And in my, I guess in my family, we're proud black fellows. Like, there's nothing more. We love them being black. Mm. We love being around our mob. We love being around our community. We love fighting for our community. And it's do or die for our yep. community. So I, I, I was born black, I'll die black, and I'll, I'll, I'll die being proud. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, my sis, for joining us on Race Matters. Aim the grip. Yeah. Aim more hip. Don't play that shit. They on skip. Confident. Monumental. That's all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas. Big, big thank you to our guest today, Ruby Wharton. Uh, if you want more information on the National Call to Action, the Day of Action on Friday, uh, on February 5, up in Narrabri, Gamilaroi Next Generation Socials is where she go. Also check out uh, Maury Ecological Society. Uh, she mentioned a bunch of open Facebook pages from elders as well, Arnie Dolly Talbot being one of them. But we'll add all the info uh, to the website, fbiradio.com slash race matters. And big thank you to Millie Roberts for her incredible story on new voices on food, uh, which you can find out now at all good bookstores. You can also find all episodes of Race Matters wherever you get your podcasts 
us at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters. We'll catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.